Bibles to the book of Esther, to the book of Esther. We're going to be reading out of there this morning. Now, I believe this will be the last message I'll be preaching on the subject of the picture-perfect marriage. I have a lot to go through, so I'm going to move pretty quickly. Um, In this series of messages, my prayer is that you'll understand what marriage really is all about. And it's not what most people even think about, let alone understand. And so my prayer is that you would have a new, deep understanding of what marriage is. And so along those lines, I'm going to preach the perfect picture marriage, part three. Let's pray. Father, what a how wonderful you are in your word, the pictures, your glory, your honor, your majesty. I'd rather have Jesus than anything. That song perhaps needs a selah on the end of that. What a beautiful song it is. How great you are. And I pray that we would see you in our marriages today. We'll see you in salvation like we've never seen before. See you in the church and our church be like it's never been before. So, Father, I just ask these things in your name. Amen. All right. I ended at wanting to get into the book of Esther last week. And to kind of get you up, we've looked at several different aspects of of marriage and different pictures. I mean, it, it, it's just amazing how God's made things. Um, we looked at the proposal. We looked at the wedding ring. We looked at what the what the husband to be goes out and does and prepares a place. What the wife is preparing herself and all these just wonderful pictures. They just scream of God and His glory. And uh, yeah, we just kind of look at them and just think that's kind of how it is. We we have our fleshly mind thoughts, but that's quite the trap. I want to look at what you'll see in Esther here is a picture of some bad marriage things and some good marriage things. Esther chapter 1 verse 1, Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, that is Ahasuerus, which reigned from India even unto Ethiopia, over 170 and 20 provinces. That's pretty big. That in those days when the king Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the palace, in the third year of his reign he made a feast unto all his princes and his servants, the power of Persia and Media, the nobles and princes of the provinces being before him. When he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the honor of his excellent majesty many days, even a hundred and four score days. And when these days were expired, the king made a feast unto all the people that were present in Shushan the palace, both unto great and small, seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace, where were white, green, and blue hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rings and pillars of marble. The beds were of gold and silver upon a pavement of red and blue and white and black marble. And they gave them drink in vessels of gold, the vessels being diverse one from another, and royal wine in abundance according to the state of the king. And the drinking was according to the law, none did compel, for so 
the king had appointed to all the officers of his house that they should do according to every man's pleasure. Also, Vashti, the queen, made a feast for the women in the royal house which belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, uh, there's a problem right there, he commanded Maaman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abiktha, Zethar, and Carcass. Boy, that's a bad name. <laughs> the seven chamberlains that served in the presence of Ahasuerus the king to bring Vashti, the queen, before the king with the royal with the crown royal to show the people and the princes her beauty, for she was fair to look on. Now, I'm going to tell you a trap right there. Now, let me start with a little story. I don't know if you, uh, every once in a while I hear this commercial on the radio talking about Big Lou, and he's selling uh, insurance. Um, uh, I forget what kind of insurance, just temporary insurance. And... <laughs> It's kind of funny because he, he's talking about guys who have married and their wives want that insurance policy, and you can get it even when you're older. And you have that, he calls that trophy wife. I was like, trophy wife? This was a trophy. Is that what your wife is, is a trophy to display to, to others? He says, Big Lou, he's only on number two. <laughs> I'm thinking this is... This is crazy. I just, it's hard for me to understand some of these, these things. But the king here, I'll tell you what, I don't want to parade my beautiful wife to everybody to look upon and potentially lust upon or whatever. You know? But the queen Vashti refused to come at the king's commandment by his chamberlains. There we go. He ain't going to tell me what to do. Therefore was the king very wroth and his anger burned in him. You're seeing here two opposite ends of what marriage should be. And we'll get to that conclusion at the end. Then the king said to the wise men which knew the times. And we'll skip past the parentheses and all the names there. What shall we do unto the queen Vashti according to the law? Because she hath not performed the commandment of the king Ahasuerus by the chamberlains. And Memekin answered before the king and princes, Vashti the queen hath not done wrong to the king only, but also to all the princes and to all the people that are in the provinces of the king Ahasuerus. For this deed of the queen shall come abroad unto all women, so that they shall despise their husbands in their eyes when it shall be reported. And I'll tell you, that spirit's out there today. The king Ahasuerus commanded Vashti the queen to be brought in before him, but she came not. Likewise, shall all the ladies of Persia and Media say this day unto all the king's princes which have heard of the deed of the queen, thus shall there arise too much contempt and wrath. And in verse 19, it says, If it please the king, let there go a royal commandment from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes that it be not altered, that Vashti come no more before the king Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal estate unto another that is better than she. Now I'm going to tell you something here, ladies. If you think you are high and mighty, you've got the great ladies club, and you think you got the power, enough to overrule your husband in matters, 
If you don't have a reverent fear and respect for him, no matter how pretty you are, no matter how godly you think you are or others think you are, you have opened the door of your husband's heart to another. Another in whom he will find new beauty. Who will give to him the respect and honor and love that fills that hole. I have seen that happen personally. And when the king's decree, verse 20, which he shall make shall be published throughout all his empire, for it is great, all the wives shall give to their husbands honor both to great and small. And the saying pleased the king and the princes, and the king did according to the word of Memekin. For he sent letters into all the king's provinces, into every province according to the writing thereof, and to every people after their language, that every man should bear rule in his own house, and that it should be published according to the language of every people. Now I want you to turn to Esther chapter 2, beginning in verse 15. I'm not really wanting to go through the whole story here. I'm just looking at the aspect of, of marriage here and looking at the different thoughts. Now, when the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her for his daughter, was come to go in unto the king, she required nothing but what Haggai, the king's chamberlain, the keeper of the women, appointed. And Esther obtained favor in the sight of all them that looked upon her. So Esther was taken unto King Ahasuerus into his house royal in the tenth month, which is the month of Tibeth, in the seventh year of his reign. And the king loved Esther above all women. There's a difference. Loved. And she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Ashton. Now turn to Esther chapter 4. Beginning in verse 15. Esther chapter 4, beginning in verse 15. Then Esther bade them return Mordecai this answer. Go gather together all the Jews that are present in Shushan, and fast ye for me, and neither eat nor drink three days, night or day. I also and my maidens will fast likewise, and so will I go unto the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now it came to pass on the third day that Esther put on her royal apparel and stood in the inner court of the king's house, over against the king's house. And the king sat upon his royal throne in the royal house, over against the gate of the house. And it was so, when the king saw Esther, the queen standing in the court, that she obtained favor in his sight. And the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. So Esther drew near and touched the top of the scepter. Now I, I tease Patty, I say, I'm going to get me a scepter. <laughs> then said the king unto her, What will thou, Queen Esther? And what is thy request? It shall be given thee to the half of the kingdom. That's an interesting statement that you'll see repeated in the Bible. But it was something that uh, was of great honor. Vashti proudly, I want you to think about this, Vashti proudly came not or proudly came not when called and lost her place. Esther came humbly and fearfully 
when not called and obtained favor? Do you have the spirit of a Vashti or of an Esther? We best be aware of what spirit we have. First Peter 3, 1 says, Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may, without the word, be won by the conversation of the wives, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. There's power in that, folks. Amazing power. It's, there, there is so much power in the, in the marriage if done right. Whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of the plating of the, of the hair and the wearing of gold or the putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and a quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. For after this manner in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husband, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are, as long as ye do well and are not afraid with any amazement. Now, I've always liked, looked at that statement and said, as long as ye do well and are not afraid with any amazement. So I began to look at some of the, the words and the meanings of that, and this is what I've come out of that. That this is a picture of a godly woman freely doing deeds, providing for her household and others as the virtuous woman, secure under the trust and security of her husband's care. Just freedom, total freedom, because of who she has as a husband and the protection and everything she has, that she can go about and do good things. Hebrews 13.4 says, Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. Let your conversation be without covetousness, and be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, I'll never leave thee, nor forsake thee. So that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. I think this is a, a verse that complements what we just talked about as doing well and not afraid without, with any amazement. Marriage is made of two people, a man and a woman. This is a man's work. I'll tell you, I, I know why this, does, this kind of stuff doesn't get preached, because they'll throw the preacher out. <laughs> this is not stuff people want to hear. It's a world for a man to labor in, to fight, to give his life for the sake of his family and others in need. It's an honorable, difficult life, the man. It's not a selfish life, men. I get on you as well. Go to Gettysburg. Look at how many men and what they were for, fighting for and why, right or wrong or indifferent, giving their life for the sake of their, their families and the future. <laughs> it's mind-boggling. Mind-boggling. But a man, what you need to be is honorable. Not just even in your family, but beyond that, whatever you can do for others, that you're trying to help this entire world. The fatherless, the widows, all those things that are difficult. Hey, we're to be a part of just serving everybody. It's not a conquering, I'm on the top and everybody serves me. It's, I need to do everything I can to serve others. 
The woman in response is to carry out the will of the man, to be faithful, chaste, to fall under, to trust in, to be secure in, to reverence and bless him and to do good unto him. Her family and those in need also, and by and through the will of her husband, she is to be his helper in life. The two are to operate as one flesh, yet with distinct roles that when carried out brings a close, intimate relationship. It's the picture of the same relationship the Christian and the church, his bride, to have with Christ, the bridegroom. It's also the image of the Godhead. You can see that in there as well. I hope you're starting to get the picture of this. Now my wife will jokingly say to me, what would you do without me? And I will jokingly respond back. I would work the job I want to work. I would work when I want to work. I would do the things I love to do. I would take vacations place where I want to go and to do things I like to do. I would have a vacation home, a bass boat, perhaps a yacht to sail the ocean blue. I would take up a hobby. I would stop ordering off the dollar menu and start ordering what I want regardless of the price. And I don't get much past that till her eyes turn from big round amazement to squinty eyed, you're about to lose your back row tonight, buddy. <laughs> You know, but in a sense, it is true. It's why some men struggle at their wedding. They know what they're about to lose. Some of them do. Some of, them, some of us are was just too, uh, <laughs> didn't even realize what was going to happen. You know, while women have their rosy picture of wedding bliss and future family in front of them, the man see the green reaper, the death of his free bachelor life. What thing does the wife owe the man who gives his life for the bride? She doesn't owe him anything because she owes him everything. To put her trust, love, devotion, submission, and obedience to. To have only one true love and to demonstrate that commitment by fulfilling his will through the great provision he has provided. He is the hidden man of the heart. He is her savior, her life, her security, and joy of life. He is Lord. He is savior. He is joy. I say Lord. As Andy would tell you, that's little L-O-R-D. But now wait a minute. What things does the man owe the woman who has given all for, for him, for her? It should be that he has already given it. It is the one thing that he gives. One thing that is everything his life for her. You say this is impossible to achieve, but it is the picture of marriage that the Christian couple is to paint before the world. It's an overcoming, supernatural marriage built upon the true image of marriage, Christ and the church. This is the picture of perfect marriage that cannot be broken or reproduced by the world. But Christians aren't living this. And the world is scribbling all over that picture of marriage, physically and spiritually, but it has no rights except to those who will freely give in to it. And I pray you will not give in to that. You know, I've long asked, I'll give you another question that I've asked the Lord for a while, of why God, why men in the Bible, in the Old Testament, had so many wives concubines, and there not be a clear condemnation of it by God. And it's one of those things, Lord, what is that? 
But yet today, there's a moral condemnation over, yeah, there's those out there, but uh, today it's pretty much given, you know, this, what that's supposed to be. I have concluded that the answer is in pictures. First of all, we learn in the New Testament that marriage was a mystery until Christ and the church age. They did not have the knowledge and understanding. Really what marriage is about, what I'm telling you about today, marriage was without clear understanding in the days of multiple wives. There was not a clear under, spiritual understanding of it like there is now. Therefore, with new understanding comes new rules to whom much <clears throat> is given, much is required. You know, in the Bible, it was the man who could have had many wives. I don't see anywhere where the woman had many husbands in the pictures. Physically speaking, multiple wives were permitted as long as the man could provide the physical support of them and the resulting support of the children brought up by them. Generally speaking, it's the rich ones who could have many wives and concubines. I believe it was allowed because it does not violate the picture of Christ and the church in this manner. Without that knowledge, the true representative uh, uh, Christ is the single bridegroom. His bride <laughs> are numerous, yet one husband. There's a picture there. I believe they were painting a picture that in one sense, in the physical sense, without the spiritual sense, worked. It pictured, it pictured Christ, one bridegroom having many wives as a bride. And he can truly take care of every single bride, every single one of us to her fullest. Number four, when the mystery of marriage is clearly revealed and detailed in the New Testament, it's clearly seen that man cannot even attain even to fully taking care of one woman. But we're allowed to paint the picture of Christ. We have the tools and supplies to paint that, the picture of Christ in the church through the marriage of one woman and one man for life, overcoming all obstacles by and through the word of God. And that's how we can please him. It is like a happy, fulfilling picture that little children paint of their family to hang upon the refrigerator in their homes. That's, that's what your marriage is to be like. If you truly get the picture of marriage, it's a temporal representation of the eternal, the picture of Christ, the bridegroom, and his bride, the church. Want a truly good marriage? Study your part. We had a missionary who says, do your job. There's something about that. Do your job. Let me give you a little help here. Don't study the other spouse's part. Make your life study on your part. As a pastor, I must show both parts. And I'll tell you what, if, when I get into it and I see what all the wife is supposed to do, I can, ooh, that's a bad place. That's, I don't, gives me the wrong kind of thoughts and feelings toward my wife because I see her errors and all those things and you can get absorbed into them. <laughs> but when I look at my part, there's something amazing that happens. My wife all of a sudden becomes more beautiful. I become forgiving. I become sorry for how I treated her. And it feels all right and it feels good. 
So look at your part. Look at your part. Here's a few more pictures of marriage. I've been told that the man is more visual attraction to a woman. The woman proved that out in their obsession with looking good on the outside. You know what a business clothing and makeup is these days? Oh, my goodness. But what a crazy thing how men choose a wife. They have this magical fascination with the woman they seek. I know it's supernatural because, I'm going to say this in a bad way, I look at some women out there and I think, hey, nobody, who would marry that? <laughs> Yet somebody does. And they're magically taken away by it. Hey, that's a good thing. That's supernatural. God does that uh, for us. Um, you know, I, I, I think I've said this before, you know, and as your children get older and they get into marrying age, look for somebody who's <laughs> just caught away with your daughter. That's got to be. I also, no I also notice that other men think that other men are looking at their wife all the time. Now, I, I had that thing. It's just, I mean, when you feel that way, that's how you feel. That's your knowledge, man. You, you, you're on top of it. Is he looking at you? <laughs> Those sort of things. They may not be true at all. It's unexplainable, but it's real. Jesus sought his bride and sees her as beautiful. Explain that to me. What beauty is there really in us? Women and children of God struggle to see ourselves attractive to God, but Jesus demonstrated his attraction by coming to and giving his life for us to assure us of, us of our beauty to him. For the woman, she is not so easily attracted by sight as she is by touch, is what I am told and begin to understand and see. Isaiah 53, 2, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. It's not so much about the beauty and handsomeness of the man to the woman as it is the man to the woman. Touch is what he can give to her life, the things of life, the fulfilling of life. You know, what she seeks is a prince. You know, it's the princess, you know, the, the prince. It's the prince who's got everything. <laughs> John 10.10, 10, the thief cometh not but, to, but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. That's what a, a lady's looking for, if she's thinking right. Of course, she's, they're getting caught away in some of these silly thoughts and things with men. It's the thing that the Bible gives warning in the scriptures. It says, now concerning the things whereof you wrote unto me, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, it doesn't explain exactly what the situation was. It says, Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise to the wife unto the husband. And the wife hath not power over her own body, but the husband, and likewise also the husband hath not power of his own body, 
but the wife. Defraud ye not one the other, except it be for consent, with consent for a time, that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again, that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. The touch of a man. Now I'm going to take a little bit of liberty here. It's more than physical. A woman can be touched in many ways. Through listening and kindness and extended conversation with a man. I've told my wife, and they're maybe totally innocent, I said, you're going to end that. <laughs> you're not going to talk like that in that context. That's just, that's just a catch for a woman. For somebody to listen to him and show kindness, you know. And your husband might have had, been having rough times, rough days, and he's not doing so well. And maybe hasn't treated you so well. Boy, how pops the guy. I'll tell you what, I've learned enough about these things. If I was an evil person, I, I know how to get girls. <laughs> but it's wrong. There's men out there that know these things. He could have the display of security by his strength and his ability to provide. There's the next thing. You're, you're doing everything you can to make two ends meet. Here's this nice guy who listens to you, talk to you. Seems so innocent. He has a nice car, he has home, he has big bank accounts, whatever. Prestigious job. It can be of a physical display of fitness, muscular strength, or by his perfume. <laughs> or his appearance is well-groomed in a well-dressed man. Or spiritually, he can give an air of godliness. Someone who's close to God, a feeling of trustworthiness, a dedication in marriage. Yep, pastors are a target for women in those senses. This stuff happens all the time, folks. May it never, ever happen to you. May you guard against these things. Now, how do you know men are attracted easily by their eyes? The booming pornography business and the women's makeup. And the immodest clothing business, or should I say the lack of modest clothing stores. Women seem to know that they are in competition in the looks business. They look to attract, or in another way, they are trying to overcome that feeling of not feeling pretty. Sometimes it's not meant in a wrong way, but sometimes women just don't feel pretty, so they do stuff to make themselves feel pretty, to put on extra makeup sometimes, or a... a pretty dress and they're hoping that maybe the husband will say, oh, you look nice today, and boy, if you don't, woo. Sometimes emotionally, just feeling yucky or unattractive. And they do that, women begin to paint. What do men struggle with in trying to be attractive with women? What do men do? They show off, don't they? <laughs> Isn't that what guys do? They start to show off. What are men concerned about in maintaining a marriage relationship? A woman looks to beauty as a man looks to performance. You can't turn the radio on without hearing an advertisement on men's health. And you know what I'm talking about. They are suggesting to men they are losing their edge of manliness. And it causes concern and men are suckers for it. 
You say, that's just a small group of people. No, nobody spends that amount of money hour after hour on advertising, which isn't cheap, that is not driving a massive amount of profitable business. Folks, we're about to get latched into the, these are the wrong directions. Here it is. We ought not to concern ourselves in marriage for what we ourselves can provide to each other as much as the trust for the other to love and care when we cannot provide like we could. The Christian marriage has supernatural power. It's unfailing. Remember Superman? He had only one thing that could keep him from overcoming. Ever, he, he could overcome all the wrong, and uh, he was just super powerful, and he represented everything right, but there was one thing that got him, the kryptonite. What is the kryptonite in a supernatural, successful marriage? The Pharisees also came up unto him, tempting him, and saying unto him, It is lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause. And he said, un, said unto them, Have ye not read that he which hath made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and, the tw and they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. They said unto him, Why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement, and to put her away? And here's the kryptonite of a Christian marriage. He saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts suffered you to put away your wives but from the beginning it was not so hardness of heart is the kryptonite that can kill a marriage a good Christian marriage I'd like to conclude this message by reading a portion of scripture then I'm going to make some closing statements Ephesians 5 Beginning verse 21, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore the church is subject unto Christ. So let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify it and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church, for we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. Marriage, what we learn here, marriage was a mystery until Christ was revealed. It was one of many mysteries. You'll find the word mysteries only used in the New Testament, that particular word. Or what we might say, things that were not fully understood in the Old Testament. That's what the mystery was. They just didn't have the complete understanding. It's like a children. You're going to find out that the, that the whole timeline of God is like a growing child. <laughs> there are certain things children didn't understand. There's things they didn't understand. But we understand now. 
It's in every way a picture of Christ, the bridegroom, and the church's bride. Therefore, the husband is to take his wife as a part of himself. He knits this relationship together tightly by losing his life for the benefit of his wife and children and even for others in the world. He becomes a cover of protection, security, and unconditional love that produces great security to the weaker vessel. The wife is to fall under, submit to her husband, to reverence him, to make him everything, for him to be above all and everything. She tightly knits this relationship by her devotion and worship to him that she totally fulfills him that he has, as the Bible says in the virtuous one, no need of spoil. Let me just give you a couple things that you can ruin this. Tell your husband how your dad is so great. Don't do that. I'm your dad. There's things I can't, can't do, and, you know, I'll receive my honor for what I do. But, you know, that can kind of tell your husband that he's just not as good. That's a wrong picture, folks. That's not, that's not what it says. That's not what you're supposed to do. He's to be everything. Guys? Tell your wife she's fat. You know what you're telling her? She, that's insecurity altogether. It means all of a sudden now your relationship she's running is built on her looks and my abilities and things like that, which you can't, can't help a lot of. There's all sorts of things. You know, we're getting this stuff wrong, folks. We better be careful how we look at it. But you say he falls way short of the picture of Christ. And he says she falls way short of the picture of the bride, the church, that both statements are true. And if you live in the picture that marriage is about mutually benefit, benefiting one another, your marriage is doomed for failure. Remember, a marriage that stays together can still be an, an unsuccessful marriage. And that picture of marriage, one of bickering and dissatisfaction, is painted before your children. And that picture, though you don't intend to, it paints a poor picture of Jesus and a poor picture of the church. You realize how important your marriage is? It's a picture, that picture is a picture you can't afford to paint. This is why the scripture I just read started with submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. We ought to have a certain fear of God in our marriages. And then the end of that reading says, Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. The man is to love his wife. Period. It is unconditional, regardless of her ability or the performance of her part. The woman is to reverence her husband, period. That's your part. Do your part. It is unconditional, regardless of his ability or the performance of his part. This is a marriage that cannot fail because it's built on the supernatural overcoming. Marriage is all about overcoming. Salvation is all about overcoming. There's a word for the saved called the overcomer. 
He that believeth on the Lord. Who is he that overcometh? He that believeth on Jesus Christ. Now you get the picture of marriage. I'd like to end this message by commenting on, we call the picture of marriage the perfect, that word perfect picture of marriage, perfect. You know, as a Christian, we are to be transformed into the image of Christ. Know anybody who just, looks just like Christ? None of us will ever obtain under that picture, yet the scripture says in Matthew 5, 48, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is, in, which is in heaven is perfect. Whoa. But there's a therefore. <laughs> so we're going to look back and see why it is therefore. Matthew, so we'll back up. Matthew 5, 43 Ye have heard it that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be the children of your Father. There's the perfect one. Here's the perfect part of it, which is in heaven. For he maketh his sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, if you love your husband or wife because they're doing their part, what reward have you? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do you more do you more than others? Do not even the publicans so. Be therefore perfect, even as your Father, which in heaven is perfect. Here's perfectness that you love, regardless, unconditionally. Even the unlovable. The perfect part of marriage is that of the love of God to love even the unlovable. Romans 12, 2. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Perfection has a direction. And it is always toward growing in a certain way. So you may see your marriage. It really doesn't matter right now where your marriage is at. What's important is where your marriage is going. Perfectness in one sense. I look at a tree out here and you see the big oak tree. Oh, man, that's perfect, man. It's just, oh, it's got acorns on it, falls down. It's got squirrels living in it. I keep them and whatever. And you got this little bitty tree that you just planted. It's kind of struggling a little bit, but that's what they do. That, but that tree's not supposed to stay like that. It's supposed to grow. The problem is, is when it's not growing in the right direction. You need to be concerned about where is your marriage going? And sometimes you might find your marriage in a spot where it's struggling. You might have to do a little extra, a little digging around. Fertilizer, water, paying attention to it, putting more effort into it every day. I don't know where it's at. I just know that marriage is super important to God. Don't get a vain view of what you think it is. Not only does it have a perfect means, a perfect direction. Philippians 3.15, let us therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded. And if anything, ye be otherwise, God, this is, I, I love this, God shall reveal even this unto you. Perfection has an inspector. 
If you'll listen to God, he has the next steps. He is the coach. He's your personal trainer. You've got a personal trainer. Man, isn't that of this, this day? Who's going to say, hey, you know, you're not quite getting it here. You need to go over here. He says, that's what he says. If you, he says, be thus minded. And if anything, you be otherwise minded. God shall reveal this, even this unto you. And then James 1.4, but let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Perfection in your marriage takes patience. And the end of perfection is contentment, satisfaction, and peace above all the circumstances of life. That's a supernatural marriage. That's what you're there for. I hope you got the picture. I hope you want to paint that for if you're God in a miraculous way and to do your part regardless. We're not going to answer as husband and wife to God. We're going to answer as individuals and we're going to answer to how we did our part in marriage and how we demonstrated. God's love. And even if one's horrible in marriage and one, you can paint some of the most beautiful pictures in that. But then also, when both parts do their part, boy, you paint a wonderful picture. You make the world ask questions. You know, how, how, do, you, how do you have such a great marriage? You know? The world will come to us. It's not happening right now, folks. I have the cream of the crop here. But I'm telling you, even the cream of the crop, you can mess up. Get this picture right. Begin to always think of your part in it and draw closer one to another with the heads bowed and eyes closed. Pianists come into play. What a beautiful picture marriage is. It's a, it's a picture of Jesus Christ and him coming for us. May we make our own picture of that, of marriage with our spouses, with our children. May we do our part. When we fail, you know, God, He knows we're going to fail. But when we say we were wrong, when we come to the truth, He's there to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's a continual thing that needs to happen in a marriage. Amen. I hope the Lord's spoken to you today that you're glad that you came to the house of God. And uh, just pray for all of you. I want what's best for each family. I'm not stupid enough to see what's going on out there and what could happen here. The best thing is prevention. <sighs> Most pastors are in the part where they're trying to help fix things because things weren't prevented. So just think about those things and just, just really work in your marriage for his honor, his glory.
Father, thank you for all who's come out today. Lord, bless their families. Lord, watch over them. Keep them, guide them, help them to be a great testimony of your great love. For we ask it in Jesus' name.